Downloads of this show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Aqua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. It's almost Halloween, and I'm going to celebrate with the song from my well-spent youth. Well, actually, my well-spent infancy. <laughs> With Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett from his original Monster Mash album back in 1962. Yeah, I wasn't doing much back then. <laughs> but that song has endured. It's been a perennial favorite and classic. And it's been covered by many, including British ska band Bad Manners, who featured it on their 1980 debut album, Ska and B. Who knew? Monster Mash, Ska, it's all good. So we have a lot of episode for you today. We are so excited for our guest artist this week. And we're going to open with a song that our guest artist handpicked for the episode. And if you know 
may provide a clue to this person's identity, trick, or treat. Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. What you heard was an Oscar Mayer rap. I have no idea who did it because there was no information on the um, the file I was given, but I believe it's a version of the original Oscar Mayer jingle, which I'm sure you know. Oh, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I truly want to be. The original jingle was written by the late Richard Trentledge, who was a career TV jingle writer and who composed it overnight to enter a contest Oscar Mayer was having back in 1962. Yeah, that's the same year that Monster Mash came out. And both songs have been sung happily by kids all over since then. Wow, how woo-woo freaky-deaky is that? That's how freaky-deaky. All right, kids, you can come out from hiding now and get cozy, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! Do I got a big fish catch here for you today, kids? Someone I've been dying to bring to the show for months, months, and I finally snatched her. Oh! So please welcome the producer, storyteller, writer extraordinaire, Robin Gelfenbein. 
Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for being on. It's been a, we've been trying to we've been trying to I reel know. you in for a while. You're an elusive fish. Uh, no, not on purpose, <laughs> but it worked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things work out when they're supposed to. Exactly. I kind of think I kind of think that. I agree. So, Robin, um, I asked this question of everybody when we when we begin our mm -hmm. chat. Sure. How and where did we meet? And it's a while ago because I'm going to say we know each other close to the better part of a decade, if not a little more. Yeah, I mean, I started storytelling in earnest in 2009, so it really is almost 10 years, which is crazy to me to even like think I know. about right now. And I thought that we had met at Speakeasy, which was a storytelling series that was really the only one in existence, besides The Liar Show. Um, for a long time, and that right. was produced by Sherry Weaver. Sherry I remember Weaver. hearing the story, you telling a story about your your dad um, the day that he died. It's like a really powerful story. So I thought we met there, but you seem to think we met somewhere else, which well, I, anything is possible. So anything is possible. I know for sure I saw you tell okay. at Speakeasy, but I don't know, that may not be the first time we met. The other place where I thought that we had met mm -hmm. was... I I think it was called Drom. It's I totally know in that In the space. East Village. It's yeah. a basement space. Mm -hmm. And Smith Magazine was doing a show around the Jewish holidays. I, mm -hmm. I'm going to say around Yom Kippur. Okay. But you were there. And I remember we, we were sitting on a banquet and we were talking. And we didn't know each other really well. Mm -hmm. So, no, obviously Larry Smith was there because Larry, yeah, Larry Smith, Smith is the founder uh -huh. of yeah. Smith Magazine. Yeah. But I totally remember that night. I didn't realize that was the first time we met. It's very, it's it could very be. plausible, it, it and that timing one. makes sense, too. Yay, we figured it out. So, Robin, where are you from? I grew up, I actually always say that, um, so for those of you listening, I have dark curly hair, and I am of Jewish and Italian descent, so when people ask me if I'm from New York, I always say, no, I just look like I am. Ah, <laughs> because you're the, the quintessential New I York totally mix. I totally do, yeah, yeah, completely. But I grew up outside of Hartford in the oldest town in the state of oh, Connecticut. Oh, you're from Connecticut? For mm -hmm. some reason, I thought you were from Long Island. Mm -mm. I grew up outside of Hartford in a town called Weathersfield, and... Um, I actually never wanted to live here. <laughs> really? But somehow I wound up here, yeah. That, that happens, you know. Yeah, you I end mean, up, I bopped around the country. Like, I was really? on the West Coast, yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a little mm -hmm. bit. Sure. I can't wait to hear about mm -hmm, it. Yeah. So, um, did you come from an education and performance-oriented family? Was your family creative? Um, I wouldn't say they're stereotypically creative, but... So, my dad was an accountant, and then he moved into the consulting world. So, you know, and luckily, he was not creative with numbers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be creative if you're an accountant. No. No, not at all. No, not at all. Um, my mom was a teacher. My aunt was also a teacher, and she was a social worker. Uh, my uncle, uh, I think you know this, my uncle is a Roman Catholic priest. Father Gelfenbein, which is its own story. And, I mean, he... He obviously like gives a lot of sermons, and he's a phenomenal storyteller. He's really engaging and compelling. And the more that I watch him in action, knowing that he's had no like formal storytelling training, I'm really impressed by him. He's extremely creative. I mean, I would say like both of my parents are very creative in very different ways. My mom is definitely a word play person. Um, as is my aunt, as was their mother, and that's totally where I get like my love of puns and all wordplay and everything like that. Um, yeah, and, and they all like to cook, and my grandfather um, made, used to make dollhouses, and he made one for each one of 
us, so I have two sisters. So we're, cre we're all very creative in different ways, but I would say occupationally, not necessarily. Gelfenbeins and the Coens are very, very creative people. So out of your siblings, were you the one that ended up being the most creative, do you think? Um, or did you do things with I mean, them? My, sister, my sisters might not want to hear this, but I would definitely say yes. <laughs> um, I, I mean, my... Are you my, the youngest? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest? I always say I'm the oldest, the boldest, and I just added on the coldest, because I'm cold all the time. No, I don't mean cold mean. Oh, I'm just okay. temperature-wise, ah. I'm cold all the time. I mean, I'm definitely, like, the dorkiest. Like, I'm the punniest of us. Um, but in terms of, like, our professional pursuits, for sure, I'm the, I, I have the most creative, you know, quote-unquote creative job out of the three of us. I mean, my mom always performed, so we would, you know, she'd do, like, community theater growing up, oh. so we would see her perform. Yeah. So, oh, so your mom was an actress. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Is, yeah. She, is your mom still on the planet? She's still she with is. us? Yes, Yay! Yes. Yes, Mrs. Gelfenbein, <laughs> hello! Uh-huh. So did you and your sisters, like, do put on plays or write things or perform things or paint things? Yeah, I mean, we did... The Gelfenbein sisters? Uh-huh, that's right. We, it's sort of funny because I remember watching the Mandrell sisters as a kid. Do you remember Barbara Mandrell yes. and her sisters? Yeah, like, I totally remember that. Saturday nights, like, they would be doing their little hee-haw, whatever, country music thing. Um, we were also big fans of Charlie's Angels, but my sisters teased me because they said, you were always putting on some kind of a show, like... I wouldn't say forcing them into it, but I would make up roller skating routines. I'd make up dance routines. Um, we would, um, yeah. And they were like, they were like, you were always directing us in in something. Ah. So I did definitely like creating things at home. And plus, being the oldest, it was helpful. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because it's like, you're going to do it. You're going to do this. Uh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, I studied dance from the age of three until Oh, cool. I was what kind of dance? 21. Um, tap and jazz. Oh, like jazz hands dance? I, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ballet, cool. I lasted for two classes. I found it boring. Like, with tap, you can be big and expressive. Yeah. And the music is like, you know, big band music, it's more which fun. I love. Yeah. And so yeah, there's a, it's like, more thinky, 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 thinky. Yeah, I was like, I'm not that dainty. Yeah, no, no. I made my own coloring books when I was a kid. Oh, my. So you draw, too? Mm-hmm. Nice. Not so much anymore, but I, when I was a kid. So when all through school, were you the type that was always in, like, the art club or the drama class? Mm -hmm. Were you an actress when you were in, um, in school? I definitely wanted to be, but I wasn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't given parts necessarily. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. I mean, we did children's theater in the neighboring town. So I did that for years, and we would tour all over the Hartford area, you know, a little bit farther out in Connecticut, and put on these plays and musicals for kids, which I loved. I mean, the same group that your mom was in? No, it was oh. totally different. It was just the, the Parks and Rec in the next town over, because mm. my town didn't have anything like that. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I always wanted to play the lead, because who wouldn't? Yeah, of course. But I also knew that I really wanted to be the sidekick. I found those mm. characters to be way more interesting. Uh, I remember playing a witch once and I was psyched because that definitely is like, yeah, it's a rich part to play. Yeah. Did you take this sense of fun to college with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I Where'd you go? intended to. I mean, I definitely did when I got there. Um, I went to Syracuse University oh. and I wanted to study broadcast journalism, um, but I didn't get into the, their communication school is, is um, really well respected and and like Bob Costas went there, Dick Clark went there and I was so determined to get in there and so I worked really hard. Uh, I, I got accepted into the business school 
So, and it, because it's such a competitive school to get into, um, so I was like, I'm still going, and I got into the business school, and then I transferred into the, it's called the Newhouse School. I transferred into the Newhouse School, and I had some internships, and I didn't love them. Um, and, I mean, I think you know about the, my college experience. If you are okay with it, yeah. I actually would like you to talk about that a little bit because sure. I think it's helpful for people to hear, mm -hmm. you know, the ramifications of, of how things can escalate and how mm -hmm. stuff can get messed up and people can be hurt. Yeah. So I know that you had a pretty, you had some pretty rough years at Syracuse. Yeah. And not only was that like an important marker in your life, it actually kind of in a way almost set the stage for what you would do with your life at a later point. Mm -hmm. do so, you, yeah, kind of unintentional. Unintentional. I, I, don't, I don't want to use the word happy accident. Yeah, and no, I, I And I don't want saying. to say that everything happens for a reason because I want to smack people that say that yeah. sometimes. I mean, it's also like the source of, a, I think, like a really phenomenal story. So I got there um, freshman year and I was, I was like clean slate. Like nobody knows me here because I had been... I've been bullied by these guys from the hockey team in high school, and they called me Big Head, and they would write it all over my locker, and that made me feel really shitty. So you were tall, very young? Did you reach your full? Cause it was you, more you, like, because it was tall. the 80s, I had, you know, like... Oh, big hair. Big head, they oh, called me. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So it's like, I was really, um, really just like ready to move on. I really was excited to start fresh. Um, and I had an amazing roommate, um, Mindy Cohen, who I always joke is not to be confused with the Mindy Cohen from The Facts of Life. <laughs> I was going to ask you if it was yeah. the same one. That would have been that funny. Would've, that would have been amazing. But anyway, so she and I got along great. Um, we were very happy. I was like ready to explore everything on campus. And then um, I started hearing this weird sound that um, was being yelled out the window of my dorm and the adjacent dorm every time I came in and out of the building. And I didn't know what it was initially, um, basically what they were saying, they were saying Vargas. Um, but when you hear that, like, like being yelled out of a building, like I lived in a 20 story building. Um, and then they would start like yelling at me in the dining hall. They'd whisper behind me in class. They would leave me messages on my answering machine. The um, same group of boys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what was Vargas? What did so it I mean? didn't know either. And, and I got to, um, and I was like very scared. Um, because I didn't know what this meant. I didn't know who these people were. Yeah. I mean, I could kind of figure it out in the dining hall, but I was like, I don't know why they're yelling at me. I don't know. I've never spoken to them. And I went down to block party. And keep in mind, I was working my ass off freshman year because I was so determined to get into the Newhouse School because you needed a certain GPA. You needed to... You know, to um, have a certain number of credits. But, you know, it's like the whole thing is so new to you being away from family and your home. Yeah, and you're 18. You're basically... I was 17. Oh, my I God. Was, my birthday's at the end of the year, so I was, like, very, very young. And I was really, like, afraid to be home. I was afraid to be out. I was afraid to, like, basically live. I didn't know what to do. Um, but I would, like, go to this study room on the second floor because I knew they wouldn't be there, and I, it, like, rearranged my whole schedule to avoid them as much as possible, but also extremely determined. And Anyway, so I go down to block party, and I'm drinking, like, a Peach Bartles and James Wine Cooler, having a good time, and it's, it's like a big concert, you know? And there were, like, 16,000 students there, and somehow wow. these guys find me in this sea of people, and there were about 20 of them. And they surround me and they just like keep 
getting closer and closer to me going, Vargas, Vargas, Vargas. And I was like, what the hell does Vargas, I was so mad, you know, I'm like, what the hell does Vargas mean? Meanwhile, like, as they're closing in on me, I mean, my friends were all, like, on the perimeter, but they were scared, too. The ringleader was on the football team, of course. And it was just a very intimidating, like, mob mentality. And none of your friends stepped in Mm -mm. with you? They were very scared. Wow. And so what I found out that day was um, they thought I looked like the science teacher from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Mr. Vargas. And they were like, I could smell like the beer on their breath. That's how close they got to me. And it was scary as hell. Um, and they're like, you look like Mr. Vargas. And I'm like, who's that? And I, and eventually I just ran away because I couldn't take the, the tension. I had also like been, they, they surrounded me. Uh, I, was on, I lived on the 19th floor and they were on the 20th floor, the 18th floor, and, and some of the floors below. And one day I got on the elevator and it was totally empty and like we stopped on all the floors where they lived and they totally surrounded me in the elevator and I couldn't take it like like the ringleader's name was Chris was like Vargas like he was so close to me that like the curls on my face like blew across my nose and I just couldn't take the pressure it was such a pressure cooker all I did was like stare at the numbers going down 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 and finally I I couldn't get to the first floor I was just like I have to get off this elevator I hit three, and as soon as I do, like, they're screaming at me. That was sort of the last straw, and I had to go report them. How did that all end? Well, How did it turn out? Um, a friend a- of mine, that? yeah, I mean, basically what happened was um, a friend of mine who wasn't there that day was saying, like, you're being harassed, you need to report them. And that word was just so scary to me. I mean, they also, freshman year at Syracuse, had um, six reported rapes on campus. And this was in 89. So nobody really talked about rape then. And, and it made national news. Like, Oprah came to campus. Like, there was a lot of attention being paid to this story. And so I was like, at least I wasn't raped. Do you, you think... Know? But how terrible is that? That you that a woman is going to say, well, at least this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like, to try to... to, to minimize, minimize it. it. Mm-hmm. So I went and reported them. It took everything in me to do it. And what pissed me off was that the woman who was the residence director was somebody with whom I worked very closely. I knew her. And when I told her what was going on, and she's like, they're just calling you a name, essentially is what she's saying. And she's like, listen, they're always breaking into cars and beating people up. You should consider yourself lucky. I, I, oh. Yeah. And this is when, like, nobody talked about bullying. No. Now, there obviously, was, there was like, no such thing about me too back then or yeah. time's up or anything. Right. No, bullying was... I, I was bullied terribly for a time when yeah. I was when I was in uh, high school myself. Right. So you yeah. know, it's it's an awful awful thing when it happens, and good for you for trying to do something about it. But did these people do anything about it, or so how did, how did it she, end? Basically, she was like, "You need to talk to if you want, you can talk to the judicial board." And so I decided to do that. Basically, these guys got a slap on the wrist, so they had to just write letters of apology, and it it, it wound up being like almost sixty guys who were involved in this in some way, shape, or form. And so, I, but they only like the ringleader Chris, only reported like five of them. Like I didn't know how many there were because I just like I was like I would see different ones all over the place and like in classes, and so it was just like it was persistent. So, so this Chris person was he the ringleader? Was he the instigator? Oh, completely. He's the one that, Here's so, what here was my theory on it. He was on the football team. They have an excellent football program at Syracuse. You know, he was a redshirt freshman, which means he wasn't playing. However, you know, people are new to campus. They want to glom on to, like, who's popular. 
you know, they want to fit in. And so I think that's how he amassed so many people because he made all these friends on his floor. So they're probably like 30 or 40 guys just on his floor. And then he was, you know, friendly with other people in the building, other football players and everything. So it just like blew up. And luckily they, they like Lord and the motherfucking flies. Oh, completely. So then I was getting letters from five of them apologizing, which is like such bullshit. Yeah. Because totally. you're like, sorry, culture Vargas. Have a great summer, you know? But there was one night, Mindy wasn't there. I had my door cracked open. And um, I was like getting ready to go home for the semester and a freshman year. And I'm like rolling up like my erasure poster in excess. And I look up and Chris is standing at my door by himself. And uh, he's looking down at the ground. And I was like, hello? And he goes, uh, he was so nervous. He's like, um, they told me I have to give you this. And he stretches out his hand and he's got an envelope in his hand. And I took it from him and I said, okay, I'll read it later. Why don't you come in? You let him in your yep. room? Yep. Oh. And I left the door open. He was so scared. So I was like, I am in a position of power. He really was like shitting his pants. So he sat down and I wheeled my desk chair over to him within like, you know, like as close as you and I are sitting, so it's like a foot away from each other. And I said, hi, I'm Robin. And he said, I'm Chris. I said, I know who you are. Because I'm like, he's been calling me Vargas. He doesn't even know right, me. Right, right. And I... It probably, he probably saw you as a human being for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At that moment. And the reason I was so strong, all year long, I had been studying nonviolent action and social change. And I thought, well, we can work this out between us. We'll talk about it. We'll come to an agreement. Everything will be fine through, you know, like mediation. So that was my intention behind it was to just talk about what the fuck were you doing, you know? I mean, I stayed very calm. Then he was just like, I was like, I never want to hear that again. I was like, first of all, why did you do it? And of course, he didn't have any answer. And then I was like, I never want to hear that again. You tell your friends. You tell anybody who's associated with this. Don't look at me. Don't yell at me out the window I never want to hear that name again and he like shook his head so vigorously and like okay basically like let me out of here you know meanwhile friends came by and they were like holy shit and they were at my door like are you okay and I'm like it's fine you so can go so I want to know A what did he give you and B what made him so scared well, it was the, a letter it was just the apology oh, just letter the apology that he letter. had been like okay. told but to give why, me but why the total 180 like why because was here's he... what I, I think is probably what happened. Um, you know, I, he probably expected to come upstairs and slide the letter under my door. He probably expected the door to be closed, but it was open. And so when he saw me there by myself, then he froze. Mm. So I think, that's, I think that's probably what happened. And it was just he, him. He didn't, didn't... want to have to, right, he didn't have the pack. Yeah, he didn't yeah, have his backup him. plan. Yeah, yeah. Or his backup. Oh, you could have, you could have kicked oh, his ass. I know. You could have like taken your shoe it was and like, like a fantasy beat, of, break yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah. god. So, from that day forward, no more bullying. No, they of course they no they they still would like snicker and sn- he never told his friends. Oh. And so they would still like you know look at me funny, snicker, sneer. I, there was like I think it was like the next night, I, we were in a bar, I walked right up to them, and uh, and I was like, hey guys. I mean, I'd never spoken to them, and they're all like, looking at me like, hell. You know, they didn't say anything. Right, she actually talked to me? Yeah, right. So like, no, she's so a th- human, and then I, yeah. as soon as I turned around, they were all like laughing. But eventually, Chris got kicked out for 
other things that he had done. Um, but then for the rest of college, I mean, they had instilled so much fear in me that I was like, I always say I was in like my own self-imposed witness protection program. Now, why didn't you transfer out? What, what made you stay? Because I was so determined to get my degree from the Newhouse School. Got I was it. Like, I'm like, you are not Got beating it. me. You are not Got kicking it. me out. Got and like, long story short, uh, senior year, I actually um, was filled with a tremendous amount of regret because I felt like I was running scared the whole time. I was avoiding, I didn't do any of the things I wanted to do on the campus TV and radio station. Um, and what wound up happening was um, I was in chapel choir because I was like, they'll never find me here. And this woman in chapel choir said, do you want to sing at graduation with me? And I was like, sure. And Michelle, I lost my voice, literally lost my voice the first week of college and the last week of college. And when I stood in the Carrier Dome, which is a massive stadium, I had no voice. And I was singing the national anthem, the alma mater, and then I made up a song for the students. All of those guys were down below in the audience. And I'm up there on this podium by myself. There's faculty and staff all up on the dais. And I basically was like a huge fuck you to them. Like, you didn't beat me. Look who's up here now. And people were laughing with me. Granted, I could barely get the words out, but right. people understood it enough. Wow. And then each one of them walked by me on stage to get their degrees. And essentially, I like stared each one of them down. What a transcendent moment. Victory. Don't mess with Robin. <laughs> so you graduate. I'm like, nice, but then don't oh. push me, you know? So but was college all terrible? I did have some fun, but I really was, I was pretty scared the whole time. Okay. Um, and the, actually, the biggest thing that changed for me was the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile came to campus, and I was like, what is this thing? Oh, my God. Um, a life-changing moment. Yeah, I put all my blood, sweat, and tears into getting that job. I had a 1% chance of getting it. Um, so what happened with the Wienermo Wienermobile? What didn't happen with the Wienermobile? Like, I mean, what it really was, it? was like it, a it was, dream come it true. It was Oscar Mayer mm -hmm. Wiener, yes. and it was a car. Yes, it's at a 20, well, now it's a 27-foot-long hot dog on okay. wheels, but at the time it was 23. Okay, so and you, the, someone was supposed to drive this car around. Yeah, we were their spokespeople. So you were doing um, so, promotion? Yeah, promotion, PR. We had media goals we had to make every quarter. Um, we had to, we were pitching stories. It was like I was running a mobile PR firm. So even though Oscar Mayer... At the age of 21. Well, 20, because you birthed this in December. Yeah, yeah, no, it was 21. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And I got paired with my complete opposite, uh, which I did not expect at all. Because, you know, we were called hot doggers. Hot doggers are like squeaky clean Disney employee kinds of people. Um, the guy I drove with, Jason, was like you know, a cross between like Keanu Reeves and Matthew McConaughey, just like a total smooth criminal kind of guy. Broke all the rules constantly. And I was such a rule follower. And truly like that, after that experience in college, I got, like, I got to such a low point. Like I was like, I don't know what I have to live for. And this job totally saved my life. You had to live for wieners. And that's right. Oh my God. <laughs> that's right. So it was buns of fun. It was a, you know, a bun forgettable experience. Um, and 15 years later, it would become a solo show. Yeah, 16 years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So it was like, it was very, very intense. You won. I did. You won. All I you did. guys, <laughs> that's all I got to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Agreed. I, I bet you were so happy to graduate and get out of there. What did you do, what did you do next after Syracuse? 
I drove the Wienermobile all over right. North America for 16 months. Get this, people. <laughs> she drove a hot dog around the United States for 16 months. Mm-hmm. I what, experienced what? life through the windshield of a wiener. Very few people can say that. Then I lived in Atlanta. I um, moved to Atlanta because one of my fellow hot doggers had lived there for a bit, and she said, you're going to love it here. It's young, it's affordable, it's fun. So I moved there, and I really wanted to work for the Olympics. Because I thought, what's like the next best thing? Because it's very hard to chop. So this would have been the '96 Olympics. Correct. And uh, I didn't get a job with the Olympics, but I did get a job working for a sports agent and sports marketing firm. So I um, ran their events department, and then it was nice because once the Olympics ended, I still had a job, um, and I was doing. I ran like sports camps for Shaquille O'Neal. Um, we did a lot of NASCAR events, uh, like corporate hospitality stuff, college football and, and then I learned graphic design and I lived in San Francisco for a little bit and then I and then I wound up here. What made you wanted to move back east? Um, I actually didn't want to like when I was driving the Wiener Mobile I remember saying to Jason I'll, I would never because the first time I ever drove in Manhattan was in the Wiener Mobile which is terrifying. Oh yeah. There are no rear view mirrors in that thing so um, it was very scary but I remember saying I'll never live there and of course you know yeah, don't say later. never. So, never but yeah, never. I moved here because um, I knew I wanted to do comedy. I mean, I did, I did perform. I was part of um, a sketch troupe in, in Atlanta. And then I did improv out in San Francisco. Um, but I wasn't doing it to the degree I really knew I would, uh, wanted to. So, so you to. always kept your, your toe in the performance water, so For to sure. speak, the whole time. Yeah, but I also had a tremendous amount of fear based on my college experience. Mm. So I ha- it took me a very long time to push through that. And I moved here. I was just supposed to be here for like a seven-month intensive comedy program. and, and With what, UCB or something No, like it wasn't even them. It oh, was, yeah, I don't um, even think UCB was existing. They were No, they here, were. They were. But, they were here, yeah, um, yeah. It was like, I forgot it was called, like the Manhattan Comedy School or something. I don't remember. Um, and I thought, well, my job was going to transfer me for a few months. I was like, I may as well try it. Um, I auditioned for the Groundlings and gotten into that, but I, I don't like L.A., so I was like, I really don't want to go to L.A., even though the, that would have made way more sense. And this is when, like 2000? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I um, decided I'm just going to go for it. Um, and I, it's crazy. I, I went out to San Francisco to get my things. I flew back here the morning of September 11th. 2001. What? Yeah. Your plane landed mm-hmm. in the morning? Yeah, like hours before, like 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. That is cray. Totally. And I swear to you, this is the God's honest truth. I was in the window seat, and we flew over the city, and I looked. I don't know why I did this. I don't. I've no, there's no reason I would have done this. But we were flying over the city, and I looked out at the towers until I couldn't see them. I don't know why I did it. And then the next morning, of course, I wake up, my sister calls, and she's like, are you okay? I really wrestled with, do I stay here, do I not? I don't know. And, like, I, I wake up, like, this is my first day back. Like, okay, I'm committed committed to living here. And, you know. Did the world goes to hell. Yeah. I wish that never happened. But I'm, I'm glad that I was here when it did happen. I, I know. I know what you mean. I'm, yeah. I know, I know what you mean. And I know that you're glad that you saw them in their majesty, mm-hmm. you know, that, mm-hmm. that night. It was a really dark, hard time in New York, yeah. and I'm, I'm kind of a little bummed that you 
came here for good and such a, a, a terrible time, but I'm really glad that you decided to stay. Me too. Oddly enough, yeah, a month later, I got booked on a commercial directed by Spike Lee. Exactly a month later, October 11th. Wow. So did you continue with acting all, all through the arts? I didn't get sent out that much, but mm. like a fair amount. And, and it was definitely something I was interested in. And that's when I started freelancing. Well, first of all, I lost my, my full-time job. Um, and uh, I thought, I want to freelance so that I can go on these commercial auditions. But I didn't, I mean, I took some classes here and there. It was fine. I, I really was like, I want to be like doing stuff on stage, and I was really scared. Were you writing at this point at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had written like some spec scripts for TV. I had written sketches. Um, I was doing, I was doing, I started out doing stand-up, and then I started writing original comedy songs, so then I would be in the stand-up world for that. Oh, so you were a comedic keyboard. musician. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So uh, I did that, and then I did improv. I did, I um, wrote, performed, and, and co-produced a sketch troupe. So you were living the working artist life in mm -hmm. New York. And yeah. Then, by that, I mean artist with a day job. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. But I have to say, like, working in advertising made me a much better writer. Oh, yeah. Knowing, like, what's in it for the audience. Like, all of those things that really actually have served me and helped me learn how to promote. And also, I made such great contacts that, you know, my friend designed the Yum's the Word logo for me, and oh, I had friends let's, who... Let, let's get to that. Yeah, sure. We're going to backtrack, going backtrack just a little bit. Um, so when, at what point did you discover storytelling? I know we said um, at the beginning that we talked about Sherry Weaver's Speakeasy right. show. Mm -hmm. Was that your entree into storytelling? Yeah, that was the first time I ever did it. I mean, I, I remember, actually, I, I went to some... some so I... I my Wienermobile story, or my Wienermobile solo show, was um, developed with this really great um, guy, Matt Hoverman. I don't know if you know Matt. I've heard of him. He's I've heard wonderful. good things about him. Yeah, he's like, oh, darling, and smart and creative, and really a uh, phenomenal teacher. So you were doing this solo show before you did storytelling? Right, and so he did this one thing where he just assembled a bunch of his students, and this woman from PBS was, were, this woman was, documentary producer and she had each of us tell stories um, for this theme which was Envy that she was going to be pitching to PBS which I think eventually aired and so I told the story my friend Adam Adam Lynn had told me for years you should go to the moth you're going to love it and I never did so anyway so I wound up a speakeasy and then I wound up going to the moth and then and the then, rest was history yeah so and I started speak. going in 2009 I was touring my Wienermobile show 2009, 2010. You doing fringes? 2011. A few. I did Chicago Fringe. I did New Orleans Fringe. I did the Philly um, First Person Arts Festival, which I loved. Uh, a friend who has a theater company in Berkshires brought me up. So, you know, I was, I was going around and, and doing stuff. But then I was, like, so passionate about storytelling, and I, I was like, I have to do this. I love it. But I wanted to come up with a, my own show but I, and I thought about it for a couple of years before I came up with it I was like I want to do something that is unique and memorable and will keep people coming back because I know how competitive it is in this city to get people to come out to your show and you came up with one of the best taglines <laughs> in <Thanks>. storytelling <laughs> history the Thank show you. is called Yum's the Word the show where everyone gets a piece mm -hmm. of homemade ice cream cake that's right and you've been one of our birthday guests. Yes, and I've been on one. your stage, too. Yep. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You've been doing this show for what, about seven years now? Yeah, we just had our seven year anniversary. Yep, seven year anniversary. Tell us a little bit about the, the whole premise of that show and how it evolved. So basically, I was trying to think of like something really creative and something I'd be really excited and passionate about. And I decided to blend my two passions, which were storytelling and making ice cream cakes, because that's something my family's done for years. Um, and I thought, ooh, I should have people celebrating their birthdays at the show so that I'm constantly making new ice cream cakes and I'm constantly getting a new um, uh, influx of audience. So I started doing it at KGB, the KGB bar, and I wrangled a couple of friends to be the birthday people. Um, all of the themes at the show, this, this uh, came through a little bit later, but so we have four storytellers per show and all the stories have, are, have humor and heart. Um, because I, I wanted, it, it, bench, it, it basically is like a little kid's birthday party for adults, so I knew I didn't want to have like heart-wrenching stories. They needed to be on the lighter side because I also play Mad Libs with the audience in between the stories so that we can create a story together and I give away nostalgic candy if I use the words that you, that the audience shouts out um, when I call for different parts of speech. So, and we sing happy birthday at the end. And, and these are not Carvel ice cream cakes. These are very, as you know. No, they're high end. <laughs> these, these are classy cakes. Thanks, Michelle. They, yeah. And they are delicious. Thank you very much. I will, um, very decadent. I will give a, a, a little plug there. When I was a birthday guest one year, mm -hmm. I asked for a tropical Caribbean birthday mm -hmm. cake that had ginger, lime, and mango, and coconut, and you did not disappoint. Thank you. Oh, it was Thank delicious. You. I aim to please. Mm, and yeah. pleased you did. Thanks so, so much. You, so now Yum's the Word is um, at a, large, a large venue, has right. found a new home at mm -hmm. Les Poisson Rouge. Mm -hmm. So what other shows are you producing now? Um, that is enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yum's no, Word is a lot of work. Because you were doing something with the... Oh, with Danny. With Danny, yeah. Uh, yeah. A few years ago, Danny and I did um, a very special episode. So we did that for a couple of years at QED, and that was very fun. Um, and now it's like I'm teaching storytelling. Um, I also teach corporate storytelling workshops, and that's all really fun, and I feel like my advertising background has completely helped do that because you know working on brand stories for so long it's kind of to me it's, it's kind of a, a no-brainer and you still tell stories all over oh, New yeah. York City all the time I'm always telling stories and now I'm and what I'm trying to do is um, I, I was issued this challenge to give 50 um, talks in 50 weeks so it's essentially speaking gigs um, and they are allowing me to use like some of my storytelling performances to as count part towards of, it yeah yeah i was oh, like cool. okay great so right now i've got 26 um Good. thanks uh, but I, I really want to move in that direction so that i'm getting paid to do this yeah i know and, it's, but, it's uh, so but hard. it's also valuable to whoever the audience is and mm -hmm. they can learn something from it it's like you know you and i can get up on stage and tell like a funny engaging story and also sometimes very sad and powerful stories but then it's like okay, well, what's the next step on that? Yeah. Like, what can, how can you? What's apply the that key? How do you? Life? How do you monetize the art form? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And to me, right now, that seems to make the most sense. Is like if you can get booked as a keynote speaker, and we can work. We can. I think we have a huge advantage having our, the storytelling backgrounds that we do because 
I think we'll naturally be able to draw people in, and that's not to uh, dismiss other speakers. But sometimes speakers are, you know, memorized and they say the same things, right. and they don't. They just have this kind of dry, that they rote stick to. delivery. No, I see this all the time because, you know, as an author, I will do, do readings, and mm -hmm, oftentimes mm -hmm. people whose words dance in my brain when I'm reading the book myself just lie flat when they read it oh, yeah. in, in a book with the head. So, in it. so No, there, there, is a, there, there is a certain skill to the storytelling that just brings words to life. Totally. Okay, so a little Pascal said that uh, you have a little story that you're going to share with us. I sure do. Is this an oldie or a newie? It's, it's an oldie but goodie, and it is one of my very favorite ones to share. And Listen, th this whole interview has been one story after I know, another. I was like, do you still want me to this tell is, story? This is the official one. Now... Robin Gelfenbein telling an official story. Thank you, Michelle. Um, so, as I mentioned, I am the oldest of three girls, and when I was a kid, I was the guinea pig for a lot of my father's athletic experiments. Um, and I think he just wanted to see what kind of athletic potential I had, and this will, this will give you an idea. He tried to get me to play golf, and I clobbered my head with the putter, which is the one club you don't swing. Um, I played Foursquare and I broke my pinky and that as you might remember is a non-contact sport and one time I was um, swimming in an above ground pool the whole thing collapsed and I got washed down the hill so when my dad in sixth grade made me play on an all boys basketball team he should have known what he was getting himself into um, but my dad is not somebody you say no to, especially when I was 11 years old. Um, he's six foot three, he is uh, a paisan, and he's a very nice guy, but he's also a little bit of a sleeping bear. And so in a matter of seconds, my dad can go from the Dalai Lama to Alec Baldwin. So you just never quite knew what was gonna set him off. And I remember being at a basketball game one time, and uh, my sister was playing. Um, and the ref blew the whistle. My dad shoots up out of the bleachers and he screams, hey ref, what do you gotta do to get a foul around here? Hit him with a goddamn ax. Sits right back down and doesn't say another word. And I'm thinking, what is lurking below? You know, it was like very intimidating and scary. And so I thought, well, he wants me to play basketball. I'm not gonna argue with him. I'll just go along with it. Cause you know, I wanted to, to spend time with my dad and I and we were very close and I you know just wanted to to uh, make him happy and so I go to the first practice it's at my local elementary school uh, gym and I instantly feel out of place because there's all these like 11 and 12 year old boys who are like these whirling dervishes running all over the court and I um, clearly I do not want to be there and but you know I had to go along with everything and so we start doing these drills and I sucked. I mean, I couldn't make a layup. I could barely dribble. And when we were doing sprints, I couldn't breathe because I had asthma. So practice ends, um, get in the car. My dad was like, you know, did you do your best? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess so. <laughs> it was only my first time there. Um, but deep down, all I wanted to do was be at home rehearsing my jazz routine for danger zone. Yeah. 
highway to the danger zone. So I was like, because I danced for so long, and that was what I was really passionate about, but I didn't want to let my dad down. So the season starts, the games are always the same. They put me somewhere in, in like the second half for a whopping two minutes, and I go running up and down the court, panting, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open. They never threw me the ball. Um, and throughout this season, my team actually was doing well, but I felt like I wasn't contributing anything. I just felt like I was like this lone bad news bear, and I just didn't, you know, want to tell my dad I didn't want to play. I was so embarrassed that I was terrible at it. Uh, so I kept going through the motions, and a few weeks into the season, we take our team photo, and it's a Saturday morning. We had these, um, these khaki shirts that had red block letters on the front that read flower box because we were sponsored by the local florist, which, you know, is great for an asthmatic. And um, I cannot find my flower box shirt. I am turning the house upside down and it is nowhere to be found. And finally, I hear my dad scream from down the hall, Robin, Amy, Gelfabine, let's go. I was like, oh shit. And so I just grabbed the only other khaki shirt I owned. I zip up my winter coat and I get in the car. We get to the gym and I am panicking because I know what I'm wearing underneath this jacket is just fodder for these 11 and 12 year old boys. And finally, they're all like lined up against the, remember those blue mats? They're lined up against the blue mats at the end of the gym and the uh, photographer is having us all line up. I finally unzip my coat, which I'm dreading, to reveal a khaki shirt that doesn't read, you know, flower box. Instead, it says, Girl Scout cookie champion. And they, you know, instantly lay into me. They're, they're like, nice shirt, Robin. Hey, Gelfabine, I'll take some Samoas and some Tagalongs. And they continue to tease me as though a flower box shirt is infinitely more masculine than a Girl Scout cookie champion shirt. And then, let me tell you something. I was very proud of that Girl Scout cookie champion. Uh, uh, recognition because I had gone door to door. I wasn't like my dad wasn't taking my forms to the office. So anyway, so finally at the um, you know, the season continues and finally it's the last game and I am ecstatic. I want this whole basketball career to end. And with like three minutes left on the clock, they call substitution. I go in and I'm running up and down the court going, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open, I'm open. And then Randy Zeno does the unthinkable and he throws me the ball and I am standing there just stunned and I see this ball come like hurling towards me and over on the sidelines I can see my dad and he's like clenching his fist like come on Rob come on Rob like don't basically like don't fuck this up and I'm like you know I, I want to make my dad proud like maybe I do have some athletic potentials now is my time to show him that I really can do something and 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 I felt really like uh, like nervous but also like kind of excited and the ball gets closer and closer and then I do what any other 11 year old girl who's been mocked all season by her all boys basketball team would do I ducked and the ball goes sailing over my head. The ref blows the whistle. And, and like the guy, boys were like, come on. They were all so mad at me. And I slink off the court. And my dad's back is facing me. And I walk up to him. I'm like, I'm sorry, Dad. I really tried. But 
I don't think, you know, basketball is for me. And he turns around and he's totally cracking up. And he's like, yeah, you've got no future in this sport. Um, but he said, but did you do your best? And I was like, I, yeah, I, I think I did. And I later learned that, you know, even though um, I thought he was testing me throughout that whole thing, um, he actually really just wanted to spend time with me in a way that was familiar to him. And rather than be, um, you know, the, the guy who I thought was a sleeping bear turned out to be like a really just a big, big teddy bear. Um, and after that, he, you know, he was actually very proud of me for sticking it out. Um, and that was the first and last time I ever played basketball. After that, he moved on to my sister, Jill, um, to see if she had any athletic potential. And she wound up being an all New England soccer player. She was one of two division one student athletes to go to two final fours in the same year. And she played on the Yukon women's basketball team who went undefeated and won the national championship. So I was like, you got your athlete, Raj. You got that, you got your athlete. Um, I, on the other hand, stuck with dancing for 20 years. Um, I, I did find my flower box shirt and I nailed my danger zone jazz routine, but not without pulling my groin. <laughs> now I can laugh. Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks. I didn't know why you weren't laughing. I mean, not that. No, it's not. I can't. I, I can't laugh in between the story. I have to you like. Can. No, no. I like I'd the unsullied experience. So, Robin, uh, where if people want to find out about your fabulousness, or if oh, they want to book you mm-hmm. to do a show, sure. or if they want to book you to do a Yum's the Word show mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. How and where can they find you? So I've got uh, two websites. One is my name, Robin Gelfenbein, and that's G-E-L-F-E-N-B-I-E-N.com. So RobinGelfenbein.com. Uh, all the contact information is on there. And yumsthewordshow.com if you want to come get some ice cream cake and uh, hear some great stories or have us come do a private event for you. We've done that. And you're on Facebook, IG, and Twitter? Yep, Facebook, Instagram, all of that under the handle Yum's the Word Show. And then for Facebook and Twitter, it's Robin Gelfenbein. Um, And Instagram, I I don't really do much with my personal account there. Great. So hopefully you'll get a bite. I would love it. That's a great pun, Michelle. I know, I'm trying. So um, if you, so I ask this question of everybody when we come to the end of our chat time together. If you had a word of advice or encouragement for a young person who really wants to do something more with their life than their environment would give them the right to think that they could do, and especially if there is something thwarting them, whether Mm -hmm. it's bullying or another situation that they feel like they're stuck and they can't get out of, Mm -hmm. what would you tell this child? Um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that you don't have to wait for it to be perfect to just try putting whatever creative thing out there um, because if you wait and wait and wait, you're never going to do it. And I would say, like, if something's thwarting you, I mean, if it's really serious, like, definitely get some help. Um, But I would also say that that whole bullying experience, um, I feel like I got through the majority of it by working on my solo show and that was by just telling that story over and over and over again so that it didn't have such a hold on me um, and I could like let let it go and the more that I shared it the less scary it felt um, the less humiliated I felt and 
the more people were able to connect with it. Yeah, because if, if you grab the wolf by the neck and you say, I'm not feeding you anymore, and you mm -hmm. throw him back into the pit, mm -hmm. no more power. Yeah. No more power. Yeah, it's pretty, it, and, and that, I think, is very powerful. You are powerful. As are you, Michelle. You are powerful. Thanks, right, thanks for being on Fish Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. And hug on the air time. Hug on I the air. I love hugs. Because we drugs. always end with a hug on the air. Woohoo! And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks, Robin, for being on the show. I can't wait to see you tell stories someplace again. Well, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to remind everyone listening that here at Radio Free Brooklyn, we're proud to announce that we are partially funded, that's partially, to begin an after-school program with local teenagers starting next year. Please help us make our dream of teaching Brooklyn teens about media and media making a reality by going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash after school and giving what you can. Each donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law and you'll have the fuzzy warm feels from knowing you've helped the next generation of radio broadcasters and journalists get a head start. And thanks in advance for your support. Well kids, that's our show. Tune in for Brooklyn Bandstand next. We'll see you next week. And we're going to close with a little bit of another one of Robin's song picks by Corner Shop called Brimful of Asha. Once again, stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.